What is up, everyone? Welcome back to Life on the Wrist. There's a lot of stuff that's happened in the watch world over the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm going to be covering a range of topics. Um, a lot of drama. I wasn't expecting there to be so much drama about some watch releases. It's quite interesting, but it's a good reminder of how passionate watch collectors are and how the community, I think, one, like I said, can be very passionate um, can be pretty divided in opinions, but I also think it's a, it was a good reminder of how, you know, at the end of the day, these are just watches, and I think we can put, you know, personal feelings aside pretty easily, uh, or at least I hope that the watch community can, can do so. So we're going to cover a range of topics. We'll go through them kind of in, in order, um, in order here. Um, but as always, love to hear what you think about these, so don't be shy. Uh, send us a message on, on Instagram if you want to let us know what you think. So I'll talk about the first thing, which is undoubtedly the um, reason maybe why you've clicked on this podcast or uh, undoubtedly something that, uh, that definitely is on top of your mind, and that was the Messina Lab, Messina and Revolution, Messina Lab and Revolution collaboration for their uni racer 1949 um where um yeah geez we'll talk about opinions um anyway so i'll kind of give you a little bit of a background on this before i sort of dive into sort of my thoughts on it so um revolution uh watch and messina labs collaborated to create a limited edition piece that was called the uni racer 1949 now the watch was inspired by a Patek Philippe reference 130 chronograph from 1949. Um, this watch was featured in Alva Montanari's Patek Philippe Steel Watches book and is an extremely rare example of the 130 with an incredibly unique dial configuration. Now, obviously, this makes this watch extremely attractive to many collectors and um, puts this watch really at the forefront of the reference 130, but also at the forefront of vintage chronographs, um, seal chronographs um, today. So what um, Revolution Watch and Messina Labs did was basically create um, a, a watch that looks very similar in proportions, in case design, in dial layout um, to that original 130. Now, if you don't know, Messina Labs is run by William Messina, who is an icon and legend in the watch industry. And he created this, um, created Messina Labs, uh, and he kind of describes it um, as his horological think tank. And to quote the article that I'll put in the in the show notes, it is a place where we can explore the question, what if? If I remember as a collector, we would always ask each other, what if a brand were to make this or this that version of their watch? Or they were to resurrect a past icon. That's really the purpose of um, Messina Labs is to explore those. And they have done so many different um, different collaborations in the past with some pretty iconic pieces. Um, to name a, a couple, they've, they've collaborated with Louis Erard. They've uh, collaborated with the likes of um, MBNF and Lepe to create their T-Rex in bronze. Unimatic, they've they've collaborated with, um, 
so so a lot of uh, Habring as well. So a lot of different brands that they've collaborated with to create these pieces that that sort of answer the question of what if in William Messina's mind. So one of the things that they said is, you know, what if Panek Philippe was to resurrect the reference 130 chronograph from 1949 and create this piece in, 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 in today's environment? Now, um, I think on its, on its basis, they're creating 120 of these uh, watches uh, priced just shy of 4,000 or 3,750 USD. Um, so on the surface, you know, it's a cool sort of exploration of... of um, of the watch and uh, and obviously the uh, very historical icon for Patek Philippe and, and chronograph collectors um, at, at their core. Now where the trauma sort of started was when people started to see this watch and really kind of talk about the idea that this watch was extremely, extremely close to the original, to the, to the original. There really wasn't a lot that the brand did differently, um, or Messina Labs did differently to create a watch that was not just taking something from the past, putting it into production and and selling it. You know, the watch is 39 millimeters, it's stainless steel case, has pump pushers. Um, it has um, a uh, tachymeter scale uh, with a... Um, blue hour and minutes hand that's filled with super luminova with a glossy black dial, a really unique sector track dial featuring Roman numerals that are filled with super luminova. Um, and the watch is running on a hand winding Salidas SW510 um, movement. If you turn the watch over, it has a case back signature for Messina Labs and describes which version of the 120 um, pieces that that specific watches now um the criticism really came is you know this essentially was um identical to the patek fleet 130 so on one hand i can see the criticism they're receiving and i've spoken about it before on life and the rest probably a couple years ago at this point i haven't really spoken about it recently but it's really important to ensure that as a brand or a watchmaker, you, you don't rely too, too heavily on your heritage and the things that you've done in the past that work. Because if someone looks back at this time, um, they, you want to make sure that they can say, oh, that's something that they created during this time and it's relevant for that time period and um, showed the brand pushing innovation forward and design forward. Um, to, to, to create something lasting and something that will be interesting to pe for people when they look back during this time. I actually think a perfect example of a brand who's done that is Oroma Pige when they released the, um, the Code 1159. It was met with mixed feelings, but I actually think it, it did exactly what I would hope a brand would do is kind of push their, themselves to create something innovative and not rest on their laurels too, too heavily. Now this is Messina Labs, right? This is a, this is a, a person who is interested in in asking the question, what if for different brands and collaborating in different ways. So so really, it's it's not a brand who's trying to push this. This is really just um, um, a brand that's you know trying to create something interesting here.
and bring bring back to life. Um, maybe some people don't don't really know that this this reference one thirty was around. Anyway, that's the sort of idea uh, there. But I think the criticism that they received was, well, it seems very commercial for someone to bring this back, basically, copy the same design and, um, you know, um, put it on the market and, and and sell them. Which I think you can see that argument as well, right? It's it's a commercial endeavor that doesn't really show too much innovation. I'll say too much innovation comparatively to some of the other things that Messina Labs has done. Um, and, and I'm not, again, I'm, I'm trying to be neutral here in, in what I'm saying. There's no criticism, right? This is, this is I'm trying to just sort of trying to lay out the facts here. Um, so, so anyway, I think that's what, that, that was sort of one side of the arguments that, that were made. Um, the other side of the arguments that were made was really about the idea that this is an iconic piece. This is a piece that stands um, on its own, really, uh, when you are looking at these these incredibly beautiful watches that no one probably... I, I, I guarantee that there are, some, there are many, many collectors who didn't even know this watch existed until this watch was, was released. And what Messina Labs and Revolution is trying to do is really showcase how incredibly iconic this watch is um, and, and how important it is to the history of Patek Philippe and the history of watch design. And I think that is a completely valid reason for, for creating a watch like this. And it's actually a really important thing for people to do is to make sure that people know about these iconic pieces, these pieces that really changed or, or write and change watch history. So there's a lot of stuff on Instagram that, that people sort of posting. It seemed like the Instagram was divided for a long period of time uh, just because of this uh, single release, which is never nice. You know, I, I think... Instagram is obviously a place where watch collecting and watch collectors sort of spend a lot of their time and it's never nice when you basically see such a combative environment it's not it's not the best um, the best place and I think both sides sort of went to great lengths of posting stories and posting update videos and re- and you know commenting on things that other people commented on and yeah um, definitely a an interesting sort of um, you know, time period for, for, for people talking about this. Something else that was sort of brought up is the idea, like, if Patek Philippe wanted to bring back this design, I think they would themselves. Um, hey, I guess we will never know because this is Patek Philippe. But what was really nice to see at the end of the day is it seemed like people were able to put, put their sort of egos and put their opinions aside and kind of just come together and say, look, I don't like this watch, but I respect you and we'll just move on. The other side said, look, this is our watch. Uh, I will try and respect your opinion, and we can just both move on from this. If you want to know my opinions, I feel like I've kind of discussed it throughout this, but I think it's pretty simple, right? This is displaying the... It is It is bringing to light an iconic watch that has an important part of the stainless steel chronograph history of Patek Philippe. It was created um, with Messina Labs and Revolution to really display that. You don't have to love it. You don't have to like it. You don't have to buy it. Um, if you if this watch speaks to you, <clears throat> then I think it's great that you buy it, and it is, um, and you'll have a, a pretty cool watch in your collection. 
If you don't like it, you don't have to buy it. And I think that's really at the end of the day where most people landed. And I think that was a, a you know, a very um, civil way of sort of ending this whole saga. Um, a lot of stuff happened with this, but um, I think at the end of the day, it's a cool watch for some, it's not a cool watch for others. And you buy what you like, you know, back to the golden rule, buy what you like. And, um, you know, I'm quoting John Goldberger here a little bit, but buy what you like. If you like it, you can buy it. If you don't, no need to. Um, and I think it's also just important to, you know, respect other people's opinions um, from both sides. If someone else doesn't like it and you do, just respect that that's their opinion. And if you don't like it and you want to criticize those who do, try and keep it to yourself because, um, yeah, uh, it's... It, Watch collecting is way more important, way, way bigger than that. Anyway, we'll move on to, to maybe a little uh, of other drama. I, I actually want to give a massive shout out to Periscope because uh, Jose there has released some incredibly important articles where he sort of dives into watches that he's seeing at auction and making sure that they are kosher, that they are... Um, you know what they are being represented as and uh, one of the watches that he kind of played a huge integral role was that omega that sold that phillips that was basically caught as being a mishmash of many different parts and you know big drama in switzerland where it, it involved people who worked for omega the omega museum and uh, i think there's a big law lawsuit there as well anyway i wanted to Honestly, just share one of his articles with you. I, I, I don't, I won't get it too in, too in depth with it. Um, but he looked at the Anticorum auction that was going on in Monaco, where there were some really great watches that were being sold. I've featured a lot of them on my Instagram because I do think there are some cool pieces that Anticorum sells. Um, but he kind of called out this Rolex Milgauss that uh, he coined as Bullgauss. Um, for, for uh, a couple of things. And, and he's got an incredible database of, of uh, these watches and, and where these are coming from and does some really nice analyses to really make sure that what you're buying is what you what you think you're, you're, you're getting. Um, I'll give a brief overview, but please go to the show notes if you want to read it. And Periscope does some really nice, um, nice articles. So it'd be great if you followed his Instagram or, or, or looked at his website regularly because it really was great. Um, so he looked at this reference 6541 that was selling at um at uh anticorum in 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 in, uh, in monaco and basically traced this watch back to november 2017 when it was auctioned by anticorum in geneva for eighty one thousand two hundred fifty swiss francs at the time the watch actually had um, an interesting submariner bezel insert in, he then found in 2019 that the same watch was offered in Luxembourg, and according to the Wayback Machine, it was marketed as sold in the mid in mid 2020. So when you look at this watch, um, it actually has a really beautiful tropical dial. But if you actually look a little bit closer, what Periscope sort of um, uh, postures is the fact that there actually might be a little bit. It, it looks a little bit more like water damage than anything. Um, when, when tropical, when something's described as tropical, it really just means it's being patina, but it's in great condition. Um, but this actually kind of looks a little bit more like water damage. Now, patina is subjective. I think I say that on regular, um, regularly. Um, but, uh, but, you know, each their own on, on that, on that front. 
uh, he then kind of looked at the bezel insert because that was the thing that was kind of noted as, as, as being an interesting part of the watch and found that a lot of the serifs that you'd expect on a Milgauss insert uh, were missing, um, which is another sort of pointer to this. He then looked at the case back and found that it, there were some inconsistencies with the details there, um, the patented designation and the production date um, were missing from the from the case back. He then looked at the movement where um, basically uh, the the there's a ring that goes around the movement that was made of the an incorrect metal. So he does some really great um, work to sort of investigate these watches and I and I, I really wanted to highlight this because it really is an important part of of buying because when you're looking at these extremely um, rare and, and, and costly watches, you want to know what you're buying. And I think Periscope does a really nice job of um, calling those out. So check out the, the links in the show notes if you want to see this full article because it, it really was um, it really was eye-opening. Um, and, uh, and yeah. Um, so I'll move away a little bit from the drama and sort of go over some, some new releases. Um, and, and I'll start off with the June 2023 Swiss Watch Export results. So Swiss Watch Exports really showed no sign of weakness in June. It was quite the opposite. Uh, the positive trend seen in May continued with growth of 14% compared to June 2022. This meant that the first half of the year ended on a particularly strong note at 13.3 billion Swiss francs or over um, or uh, up by 11.8% compared to the, the previous year. The 12 month moving average has really stuck around just just um, positive of 10% over the last 12 months, which is really, really positive. Uh, I think <clears throat> economically speaking, I think uh, things have been okay. Um, I think people are still consuming. We'll see what happens economically because that will obviously have a um, impact on on um, watch markets, of course, luxury goods. Um, so it will be interesting to see how, what, what what happens with that. But it is a nice change because I remember a couple years ago, Swiss watches industry was struggling to grow by four percent, and to be growing at something like uh, just over ten percent month over month is is a a real positive sign. So it's a nice thing to see for um, for for the industry that we all love. Of course, in the show notes, I'll leave the full report so you can read through that. It goes through things like uh, case metal and, and main markets and price categories. Hodinkee calib- uh, calibrated. Hodinkee collaborated with uh, Hublot to create a classic fusion in titanium, um, which was a pretty interesting move. I think um, Hublot is a very devi- divisive company. Um, Nico Leonard obviously hates them. Uh, some people love them. We see them on wrists of many, many people. But um, yeah, Hodinkee collaborated with them and created a pretty cool piece. I think from the from a story perspective, it was quite cool. So in 2012, Hublot actually sort of followed the auto industry and began providing a plastic quartz-powered watch to its customers to keep um, their wrist company while their own watch was in the shop. Um, this is similar to how one would get a loaner car from a local dealership if you were um, having your car serviced. These watches were exclusively offered for, um, exclusively offering was only available at the Hublot Atelier and the loaner watch was unavailable for purchase. 
um, clearly marked on the dial of watch that says not for sale. Um, sometimes customers would want to sort of break those rules and so there were requests from purchasers to sort of um, keep those loaner watches or buy those those loaner watches. And so what Hodinki um, and Hublot decided to do was cr to create a classic fusion limited edition for Hodinki where they took this um, took this idea and created a watch that instead of saying not for sale on the dial, they said not for resale on the dial. I think it's a cool story. You know, people will have their opinions on the classic fusion and who blows. Um, there will be hundreds of these made. They're probably all sold out by the time you're listening to this. Um, it's a cool concept. I, I don't think you can look past that. Um, and it's in gray, which is a very hodinky color. I think, I think you can um, you can enjoy the story at least if you uh, if you don't like the brand. I'll leave a link in the show notes to that as well. The last couple of weeks have also been um, swarmed by the Barbie and Oppenheimer films that were um, are being uh, shown. Uh, I haven't seen either of them. I really want to see them, so hopefully that will be something I can do uh, soon. But obviously, watch aficionados, watch collectors are looking at the wrists of these individuals. And I wanted to talk about Oppenheimer because I think that's the one that I, I, I really do want to see. I think Killian Murphy's an incredible actor. I loved him in Peaky Blinders. And I think from what I can tell, people are saying that he's getting raving reviews for, for this uh, movie. Um, but what's really cool is there were three Hamilton watches that were worn. Um by Killian Murphy's character, um, Oppenheimer, uh, in, in the film. And they were a Hamilton cushion, a Lexington, and an Endicott. Um, and I think, one, it puts, you in the, it puts you in the time perfectly. I mean, talk about, talk about classic American watches that were probably worn by many people during this time period. Uh, if I had to choose, I really love the Endicott. The Endicott numerals are really beautiful, but the cushion is just, and the cathedral hands on that cushion is just so, so nice. Hodinki did a nice article, shout out to them. Uh, shout out to Danny uh, Milton, who wrote the article. I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to check those out, but um, thought I'd mention that. Lastly, I wanted to give a big shout out to Trena over at Hodinki, who did a watch about or did a watch, did a article, um, the article is titled, What This Vintage Cartier Tank Cintre Tells Us About the Future of Restoration. So there was a platinum tank cintre that sold for um, about 350 USD at uh, Christie's. Um, and the watch was, uh, I believe, uh, lightly restored, or was restored in um, 1999 by Cartier. Now, um, it's believed that um, that um, the watch is now with Davide Parmigiani, who was able to find was able to, to purchase this watch. It was a, or for him it was the trophy of this last uh, spring auction. Is sort of what he posted on Instagram, where he basically described the fact that this was one of the very best examples that he had the chance to see in over thirty five years. Um, and that he was going to be the, the sort of new ta uh, care ta uh, caretaker of this watch. Now, you have to remember that this watch was restored. This watch was, um, the dial was restored um, by Cartier. 
and I think many people have different opinions about that, especially in the watch world about restoration when it comes to watches, watch styles. Now, I don't want to spoil the article that uh, Anthony uh, wrote, so please go in the show notes if you want to read the rest of it. But I thought it was an interesting sort of discussion about um, restoration and the idea that, you know, can you do restoration in a good way that allows for the watch to continue to be valued by collectors? It's an interesting concept. I think you can try and be as original as possible. You can try and do things to the T of what the original the original makers wanted to do or send it to Cartier to do so. Um, and, and, and you can come back with a watch that is near as near perfect or near or as close to being as original like the um, like it was intended to come out of the watch factory. But I think people just have to get comfortable with the idea that that, that is something that's going to have to happen. It happens in art collecting. It happens in car collecting. It's something that does does take place with, with things that are over. I mean, this watch was from the 19, I think, 1920s, 1926. So we're talking almost 100 years old. Um, and... You know, are you going to be com- are, are collectors going to be comfortable with the fact that that's just something that's that's the reality of collecting watches and collecting things that are over a hundred years old? I think it's just going to take time for people to get accustomed to the idea, but I do think even now, compared to maybe three years ago, people are being way more open to the idea of this. And to have someone as iconic as Davide Parmigiani saying this type of thing um, is is telling and. Uh, if you think that he is someone who has a lot of uh, knowledge and, and, and feels um, feels that uh, and, and you feel that he's he's got um, he's got a he's thinking about watches in the way that you want to think about them then you know maybe things will change so go check out the article written by Anthony it was really great um I call him Anthony. I think people call him Tony. But uh, go check it out. It really is a great article. Um, I'll leave a link in the show notes to all the things that we've spoken about so far. Anyway, um, I hope you kind of enjoyed some of the topics we discussed today. Um, Kind of ran the gamut of of topics. But hey, uh, hopefully you find something interesting in that. Um, If you are new to Life on the Wrist, be sure to subscribe or follow this podcast. And if you wouldn't mind rating it, it really does help me out. Positive ratings always help, and um, if you want to hear something on the podcast that we missed, uh, let us know. Be sure to hit us up on, on Instagram or on our website if you want to chat about any of the topics we've discussed in this podcast so far. Um, and um, and yeah, uh, as I said, everything's in the show notes if you want to check it out, so be sure to head, uh, head over there um, once we conclude this podcast or while, we, while you're listening. I hope you did. With that said, guys, I will uh, I will catch you in the next podcast. Take it easy.